You're listening to the Rent Roll Radio Show with Sterling Chapman. Hey, Rent Roll Radio listeners, welcome back to the show. As always, I'm your host, Sterling Chapman. Today, we're joined with Drew Walgren, not not Walgreens, but Walgren, and he is joining us from MAG Capital Partners. So, Drew, welcome to the show, and thank you so much for joining us. Hey, what's going on, Sterling? Thanks for having me on here. Happy to be here. Awesome, awesome. And uh, another reason to make us jealous, Drew is is joining us from northern sunny California. Um, he will be coming down uh, to the the Bigger Pockets conference. We were just talking before the recording about how I, I procrastinated and, and can't get tickets. So you guys won't be seeing me out there, but y'all try and catch up with, well, I guess this is going to air after that. So uh, never mind. Well, Drew, Drew is, comes from a little bit different background than, than most of us. Um, he's here to talk about industrial syndication um, more or less. So Drew, can you tell us a little bit about what you do, how you got into what you're doing and a little bit about your company? Yeah, sure. I'll start kind of me background, how I kind of arrived here, but um, yeah, at one point I, I had bought a house uh, here in the Bay area and um, you know, really, had a great time kind of uh the valley of of housing prices right about early 2011 or so so um you know at certain certain points um i sold and i made uh you know i put a lot of sweat equity into a house that really needed it along with just natural appreciation happening in the market took those proceeds and well even before i sold really had to decide do i what do i want to do here do i want to keep this house i could keep this i could rent it out i could be a landlord and start to kind of uh you know do the the burr method whatever you want to call it. I guess I had already renovated the place, uh, but I could rent this thing out, refinance, kind of go along that road. And I decided to go passive. Uh, I had a W2 job at the time. I thought, you know what? My my efforts are better spent focusing here. And I continued to see more opportunities in that W2 corporate world. And so I said, hey, I'm going to put my efforts here. I'm a strong believer in not diluting um, you know, effective efforts that you make that are seeing more returns, right? So I said, I can go down this passive road and I can see returns that are being uh, achieved and that are um, that are comparable, if not better than what I'm seeing in underwriting myself when I'm doing realistic underwriting of what I could make on a rental single family home. So nothing against it. You can make great money. But part of the problem was I'm here in California. I, you know, it's tough to make money. Can't cash here. flow. Yeah, you can't cash flow. It's all appreciation, right? So, hey, you cross your fingers. You hope that in five, 10 years, you're going to make a boatload. And a lot of times people do. But, you know, especially right now, um, you it's know, not you a business the plan. Yeah, this isn't a great business plan for right now because, you know, markets have just gone up, you know, housing prices here, 25 to 35%. So you kind of go, all right, that's a big gamble. So anyway, I went down that route and uh, invested with a few different syndication groups, uh, sponsors, and one of them was Mad Capital Partners. Uh, got to know the principals here, really like the strategy of the team, really down to earth, good people. So eventually after a couple of years, I actually joined the team and said, Hey, you know, I have a network. I can bring some capital in. I can start helping with the acquisitions. So I work with lenders as we're putting together new acquisitions. I work with our private investors as well. And so it's been uh, a great time. I've been here since about mid 2019. And so uh, we've closed. Uh, uh, I wish I knew the exact amount of money raised and amount of dollars closed, but we currently have about 340 million in assets that we're managing right now. We've gone full cycle on about 20 deals. So certainly I've just made a robust track record and happy to be part of the team and, and continuing to focus where we are, which I'll just 
jump right into that, which uh, we've had a focus since 2016 as a firm in single tenant, uh, triple net leased industrial real estate. So something we focus on there. And, and just to be a little more specific, about 80, 90% of the deals that we do, we're doing a sale leaseback transaction. So we're purchasing a piece of real estate from a commercial business who owns and operates in this real estate. So they're looking to sell usually to access capital that's tied up in this real estate and lease it back. And so we sign usually a 15, 20 year triple net lease uh, at the closing of the property. So we're, that's something we focus on. We have a lot of momentum there and it's a really great investment vehicle for cash flow. Awesome. So I have a lot of questions. Um, the first, before I forget, is there a particular reason and there might be a very obvious cash flow or, or, or underwriting reason. Is there a particular reason the businesses don't just do a refinance to pull their capital out? I mean, it's a great question. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. So yeah, the CFOs of these companies, they're looking at a whole bunch of different options and the sale leaseback is kind of a financing alternative to, you know, getting senior debt from a bank, right? But what happens when you get that senior debt, you go to a bank and they go, sure, we're going to lend you $10 million, right? It's going to come with some covenants, some rules, some regulations, basically, right? You can't break these covenants. Otherwise you're defaulting on this loan. So there's a little bit of restrictive nature to that, but the other piece is what happens to your balance sheet on your liability side, you just added $10 million of debt. So they're going, okay, that might be, uh, maybe they have their own investors and shareholders to, to kind of, appease and they don't want to see a weaker balance sheet because, you know, unless you have really good reasoning behind it, which they may, or they may just say, Hey, we want to do some capital expenditures on the property itself. Maybe whatever it might be, you're adding quite a bit to the balance sheet. So that's one alternative. The other one is they could take a line of credit, right? We all do this on our houses for on, on occasion. Maybe it's to invest in other real estate, but um, they can do the same thing there. However, they can't access a hundred percent of the equity tied up. It's what seventy percent or so is g- generally what you're going to get. So, hey, I got ten million bucks here. I can only get seven. All right. Well, I have some, you know, maybe the CEO has some initiatives we're trying to hit um, to grow the company. So we need more capital than that. We want all $10 million. So I can do the sale lease back. And now I've access all 10 million here. Uh, Not only that, if I've kept a huge $10 million chunk off the liability side of my balance sheet, right? Uh, Rent is not considered a liability. There's sort of an asterisk there, but it doesn't kind of go on, include that, uh, excuse me, add on to that number. And the other piece is now I have not only tax deductible rents, but a really predictable long-term lease where I go, look, I I got 2% annual rent bumps. That's at market, maybe even below. And I'm actually keeping myself uh, safe from large fluctuations in rent, right? If I have a short-term lease, I know people always kind of think, hey, you want to be in a short-term lease. Well, these companies, a lot of times have been operating there for decades, if sometimes almost a hundred years at a property and they go, yeah, we'll sign a 20 year lease. And now if, if rents go crazy, you know what? We're going to be sitting pretty. We're going to have nice predictable increases. So this is a way we can build our company uh, on this very fixed overhead that we have. And sure, that's a triple net lease. And I should mention that what that means for any of our listeners who don't know is that means the tenant's responsible for insurance, taxes, uh, maintenance and repairs, you know, capital expenditure items. So they take on a little of that, but that's certainly an exchange for a lease rate that's lower, right? So, you know, you may have the same property, a triple net lease, maybe it's a uh, five bucks a foot, you know, a single net or just, you know, completely, um, 
you know, zero responsibilities to the tenant, you know, that's going to be a much higher than that, right? You're sort of a trade-off of rent versus sort of uh, maintenance and expenses to manage. So we're happy to kind of work in that triple net lease world because we don't want to manage that, frankly. And it allows us to yeah. scale and continue to make more acquisitions because now we don't have to manage uh, all these expenses that happen around a property. And we know our, our cash flow is extremely predictable. Right. I, I don't have to worry about, hey, next month or next quarter. Oh, shoot. You know, property taxes went up or something broke. You know, we had a, a five hundred thousand dollar repair on a roof. You know, all those things yeah. can erode your cash flow pretty good. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I uh, I always tell people that um, people all, often ask me, like, how much I make from because I, I went the other route. I ended up buying a bunch of single family houses and duplexes yeah. and fourplexes. And and I have the unpredictable life that you just described that you want to avoid. Right. And people are like, well, how much do you make off your rentals? I, like, I, I can't really tell. You know <laughs> what I mean? Like I can forecast on a spreadsheet and and try and average it out and tell you like what I should make. But like any given month could, you know, there could be a $20,000 disaster that wipes the whole month out, you know? Sure. And, sure. And, and, and I mean, I guess in like looking back, which I'm not that far into it, but I guess in 20 years, I could look back and peanut butter spread it and tell you how much I averaged over that period. Right. But like in the thick of it, I'm just, I'm just kind of guesstimating, you know, what's going to break, when it's going to break, when some, you know, when a hurricane is going to come and and make me have three months of vacancy while I repair the property. And so um, I definitely I see the value of the triple triple net. Yeah. If you're an active investor, I mean, I see this with, you know, you could see this with like a novice business owner, for instance. Yeah. There's a lot of people who, when they open their own business or they get into active real estate investing and don't really keep organized, like kind of go, you sort of ask them what they're making and they're kind of, I don't know, you know, it's paying the bills. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> maybe they're, they're taking some cash in maybe they have some cash expenses. So they really don't have a great idea and a gauge of what's success, right? How well am I doing here? And what am I making? Right. How do I improve on something that I don't even know where I am. So, I mean, I have this, you know, question sometimes for passive investors who say, Hey, you know, I'm, I'm maybe at a, t- I like active investing. I want to diversify over here. And part, sometimes it's because they want to scale. They say, hi, I got to three or four right. properties. I don't know if I can manage more than that. So I want to put some money over here. That's a great strategy, right? Helps you um, keep more work off your plate when you're already busy. Um, um, but I ask sometimes I go, what kind of return are you getting? And you know, they kind of, you know, they're not quite sure. They're like, I think I'm getting around this, you know, but you know, there was that one expense and yeah, that, you know, so it's a, a tough thing. So what my advice for anyone who's actively investing is, you know, know what you're making, do the math, sit down because you may, you need to have an apples to apples comparison with other options out there. And Hey, if you're dead set on being an active investor, I get it. But at the end of the day, you go, Hey, I've been doing this for four or five years. And you realize if I'm seeing, um, you know, X amount of percentage in cash flow overall at, at the end of the day, at the end of the peanut butter spread out, I can tell where I'm at. Well, you might want to actually compare that with a sponsor who's in one set of, um, has one set of expertise, right? For instance, that's where right? we stay in this lane of single tenant and at least industrial. So if we say, hey, this project, let's just say is 8% cash flow, and you're going, well, I'm getting like six and a half to 7%. Well, maybe it's worth putting some capital into something like that, or maybe it's worth abandoning actively investing altogether. I know lots of people that are doing much better than what we do in return. So to them, I say, hey, more power to you. Keep doing what you're doing because you're doing great, right? Why You don't need us. You're making great money over here. So 
that's kind of something I just encourage people to try to objectively look at and don't sort of put on the rose colored sunglasses and say, well, I think I'm doing great. I think there's a season for everything for everybody. And it's not always at the same part of their journey. You know, my friend, my, my passive investors, um, they always tell me they want to be active and I always tell them I want to be passive. You know? <laughs> like, And it's true. Um, you know, you make a lot more money when you're active and, and, but I mean, the, the time and energy that I put into real estate, like nobody else really, I say nobody else, like obviously a lot of us are doing it, but right. like my passive investors, they're like, right. they're like, well, I want to, you, you're making a lot more than me. I want to be active. I'm like, well, I mean, it takes 60 hours a week. Like, do you want right. to do that? Oh, yeah. No. You know? yeah. So you're making great money at your day job. Like keep doing that, you know? Right. And, and I mean, I think, being passive is where we all want to end up, right? We all want to right. sit on the beach and, and drink umbrella drinks and have the, the money drink deposited yeah. into our, our, our account. Um, but there's just a different see, you know, I, I always kind of envision on the front end, like, like you said, if you have a great paying job, I mean, it's hard to be an investor that could like replace like a really high earner, you know, yeah. like a, a vice president in a corporate environment or, you know, some doctors and lawyers that are bringing in quarter to a half million dollars a year. Like those types of salaries are, they're hard to replace in, in real estate. So, I mean, a passive option is, is an awesome option for a lot of people out there. It's not as high returns, but like, if you look at like the work-life balance type scenario of, um, it's, it's excellent solution. So a couple of questions, um, and I, am sorry, I ask questions in clusters. It's because I don't want to forget. And they come to me like a few of them. (laughs) The first one is, did you start an industrial or did you, did you, you said you mentioned syndications. Did you maybe do a couple apartment syndications and one of the the investments was industrial. And then you just liked that the most and went with it. And then the next question is how do you source some, how do you source the markets? How do you find a good deal? That kind of thing. What do we look for in industrial? And then finally, like what kind of returns do we, I I would imagine, uh, and and you would know, I, I don't, but I would guess that an industrial return is maybe not quite as, as high as, as like an apartment syndication, but probably more product, more predictable and consistent. So sorry, I threw all those at you. No, no, I'll jump into it. Yeah. (laughs) Some of those, uh, I'll try to extrapolate all those. Uh, so yeah, going to, when I first started, actually the first syndication I invested in as a passive investor was actually industrial, but it was flex industrial. It was a large complex, uh, it was like eight buildings, I believe, seven or eight buildings, you know, each with multiple small tenants, small businesses, you know, anything from like auto alignment shops, fabrication shops, you know, it's just a completely different animal than we do, although it all falls under industrial, right? So you can imagine a place with, hey, there's a tenant here who's got one roll up door, there's a tenant there who's got like, you know, 10 roll up doors, you know, um, I don't want to say it's like a self storage unit, but a little bit in that, in that case, you have some tenants taking smaller and larger spaces. So, um, and that was doing okay. You know, it's uh, still actually in, in play. Um, but yeah, I'm in a multifamily deal as well. I'm in a self-storage deal. So I, I like to diversify. I love that. Um, I, I really am a big advocate of the passive investing style where, Hey, I'm leveraging someone else's expertise, right? Here's someone who's really got a proven track record in self-storage. I'm not going to jump into that personally, right? It's just not something I want to sink my time into learning and taking that risk on from a inexperienced operator, right? So, Hey, more than happy to throw some money into someone's deal who knows what they're doing. So I went a little bit all over the place, but yeah, I invested one in one deal with mag capital partners before I joined the team. And I said, Hey, this is, I, I love the thesis here. You know, we're talking about, 
about day one cash flow where I had invested some value add deals where I said, hey, there's some risk here that you're taking on. Uh, I call it operational risk. Hey, they have to renovate X amount of units. They have to Execution risk. Exactly. Exactly. So they have to lease up X amount of units. They have to raise rents. All this is built into the plan that they have, which is great. It's a plan. But yeah, like you said, are they executing on that plan? And to me, I, to be honest, I think it's not so much can they execute on it, but do they also do that in the amount of time that they're saying? When and when a sponsor says, "Hey, we're going to have this place up and running like a top at the end of year two, you're going to be full cash flow." Well, that's the part that that sort of I take with a big grain of salt, which is I don't know, maybe it'll be be done before that, but there's a good chance that there's going to be delays in construction. Have you ever worked with a contractor who's been perfectly on time? I, mean, <laughs> I haven't. So if you have one that's in the Bay Area, let me know because yeah, no one ever gets their their uh, contracting work done on time. At least it's um, the exception, not the rule. So that's uh, uh, risk that you're taking on there. And so this model here, I go, look, we're able to have a stabilized asset that has, as soon as you do a sale leaseback, there's a tenant in place. Oftentimes they've invested millions of dollars into the facility already, right? They already Mm -hmm. are in, there's nothing needed. This is a financing transaction for them. They just signed a new lease and boom, rent's being paid from day one, you're cash flowing. Great place to be. So I like that piece. And I said, hey, no one knows how a building um, is going to sell when they sell. We all sort of make our best assumptions and try to be conservative in how we project an exit cap rate or price, right? So that part is all taken with a big unknown. Uh, anyone who says they do know is, is full of it, right? So okay. you know that uh, there's some risk there as well. And you look at someone's track record, at least you can point to that and say, hey, they've been pretty conservative and hit their marks. But there could be economic pullbacks that affect everyone in a similar fashion. So to me, I go, I have a really high degree of certainty around cash flow here in a property with a long lease, no expenses, and a single tenant to interact with. So I see this as very reliable cash flow over that time. So maybe you get to a point where you wanted to sell, but the whole market pulls back, maybe interest rates spike. It could be a million different things that affect the entire industry. But if I'm able to say, hey, we can sit on this and continue to cash flow, or if by year five, I've gotten you know over half of my original investment back in just cash flow, is that really the end of the world if it, if you sell at a flat rate? You know, that's a that's a bad scenario. You know, it's not total capital loss, but if I just get my initial investment back and I average, you know, nine and a half, ten percent cash flow over that period, I'm gonna call that a a, a pretty good scenario for something that didn't sure. go to plan, right? If I kept in kept in pace with the S and P five hundred, but still got uh, depreciation benefits. So all that, I mean, that's that's what I like about something that reliably cash flows from day one because all that exit, it's all projections. You really have to take that with a grain of salt, whether you're active or whether you're uh, investing with a sponsor, right? So we just don't know. And maybe they crush it. Maybe they do a great job. Cool. Icing on the cake. But you have to look at the downside too. Uh, the other part of your question, I think, was kind of what do returns look like? And that kind of varies uh, depending on where you focus on with your tenants. So with a single tenant net, triple net leased asset, where is the risk, right? And the risk is where, you know, how these assets trade for, you know, hey, is there a lot of risk here? If there's less, it's going to trade for a premium, a lower cap rate. So in this case, you could have the exact same building, exact same lease terms. But if the company that's backing that lease is Amazon, for instance, you better believe it's going to have all kinds of institutional money coming at it saying, hey, we'll we'll take uh, we'll put in money at this thing and take a three and a half percent. They don't care. Right. They're like, we're yeah. parking our money. We're going to keep up with inflation. This is a great place to be. And that's 
we don't, why we don't play there, right? There's not a real yield to be found. We're looking for more than that. Um, and our investors who join us are too. So where we're working with is typically middle market private credit tenants, meaning that they're not publicly traded. They're not, um, they don't have public uh, credit ratings from standard and poor's, right? Where you go, hey, you know, uh, what's a Walmart is a triple A credit rating. Yeah. yeah. So we have to do a lot of due diligence. You know, as a real estate firm, we're one of the only ones out there that actually has a, a whole credit analysis team. I mean, we got three guys oh, cool. that work, you know, all day long on this stuff. We feed them all kinds of deals to, to evaluate. And they're consistently evaluating the assets we have under management still, right? So keeping an eye on them, we require quarterly financial reporting and our leases from them. So that is side though, looking at these new deals, we go, look, there's a perceived level of risk around private credit tenants, right? Uh, Walmart, we all know, look, they're going to pay their rent. <laughs> you know, if they have a commitment there, it's going to happen. They're worth uh, Does Walmart or, Does Walmart rent their property? Uh, they own some, uh, they own a lot of their properties, but they're actually, they're industrial. They don't own all that. We're working on a Walmart deal right now, but, uh, but typically we don't get into that space. So we're still talking about really established uh, manufacturers, food producers, food processors, um, parts manufacturers for the auto industry, equipment manufacturers for consumers. Um, you know, there's these operators are typically in the middle of the country, right? We're not talking about on the coast where I am. They don't set up shop in Silicon yeah. Valley because it's too expensive to Land operate. Land is there. too expensive, yeah. Right. So you got them in the Midwest, Texas, uh, the Southeast, you know, near where you are in Louisiana there. So they're operating there. They have a decent cost of wages there. And they're distributing their product all over the country, if not the world already. So these guys oftentimes have been in business for decades. We did a deal earlier this year uh, with a company that's been in business over 150 years. I mean, some of these tenants, they just weathered all of these economic pullbacks, presidential administrations, and, and everything else that you know the world has thrown at them. And they continue to operate because they're good businesses, well-managed, healthy balance sheets. And so to figure that out, though, you have to dig into their financials. You have to interview the whole C-suite of management. It takes a lot of work. But that's why we do all this, because oftentimes that perceived risk is different than kind of the actual risk. And, and sometimes we find out the actual risk is much higher and we walk away from it. But many times you're finding a tenant that's stronger than is being perceived. And that delta between the two, that's really where the opportunity lies, right? You're able to find a, yeah. a great deal, uh, something that yields much better. So getting back to your question about cash flow, you know, usually we're starting in the kind of eight to 10% range. So probably better than what you might've expected because you're used to hearing about Walgreens deals and those yield a lot less. It's a safer tenant, right? And it is safer, right? It's a huge company, but we're trying to find a great risk adjusted return. And so we find a tenant that we feel really comfortable with uh, at an asset price that we feel is a very great basis in case we do end up with a dark building and we're able to make that investment, get that kind of yield and still see profit in five, six years because we paid down debt and increased rent over that time. So at the end of the day, a majority of your due diligence is not actually on the property or the market or the you know the ground. It, it, it's auditing the business from a credit perspective. How sound are the financials of this company? How does their forecast look? How does their I mean, you're you're very much underwriting the business and, and its credit worthiness uh, uh, and for its ability to pay, you know, the twenty year lease. 
Absolutely. A thousand percent. Yes, that's a big piece of it. But we're still, again, looking at the real estate fundamentals is always a great backstop when you go, hey, uh, you know, we're not going to ignore the downside. You know, you have to look at that and say, in this case, where are we? What are we sitting on? Right. And if I'm at a lease that's above market, I'm going to be in real trouble. Right. I need to retenant this property. So we really like to be at a, you know, a price and lease rate. It could be the same cap rate. You know, if you're familiar with sure. that pricing, I'm just talking for your listeners here. But you're, if they're saying, hey, you know, we'll decrease the price, but we're also going to decrease the rents that we're going to pay to you. That's great. I want to be below market. I want to be in a really conservative position where, you know, if we get into a spot like that, hey, I can retenant this place, this place in no time because industrials are really sought after asset right now. They're building as much as they can. They can't keep up with demand. You know, I think uh, national vacancy rate is like low 5% or something. So there's a lot of demand there. Um, so as long as you know that, hey, I'm in a place where these fundamentals stand behind. That's a great mitigation of the risk. But yeah, ultimately we're spending more time on the credit of this tenant. You know, what's going on there, understanding their past, their future, where they are today, and kind of getting comfortable with um, you know, any kind of uh noise in the financials, right? You may look back and go, all right, we have five years financials, but in 2018, I had a big dip. What happened there? Let's talk to them, let's find out, let's get the story here. And oftentimes you get an explanation that makes sense and Sometimes it scares you away, but sometimes you go, look, uh, we get that. That makes perfect sense. And we feel really comfortable now. Awesome. So how are you deal sourcing? Like, where do you go to find these opportunities? Uh, We, you know, being in this space, you got a lot of brokers who work in this space as well. And maybe not just in this space, but they know, you know, it's a very thin slice of the whole real estate economy, right? So they go, look, mm-hmm. we got an industrial sale lease back, boom, we have, you know, maybe four call people. To call. Yeah, absolutely. Especially yeah. if you've got to deal with us before. They know that we're real players. They know that we close when we say we will. So that's how you get a lot of off-market deals too, is they go, hey, I just got off the phone with this seller. You know, we want to do an off-market transaction. Great. The brokers love it. They don't have to put together a whole uh, package. They don't have to go through the whole process that they normally do to widely market um, a property. And the reason a seller is okay with that is because oftentimes, again, financing transaction, they're saying we would we want to get proceeds in, let's just say, the end of 2021, right? So we need someone who can execute. I don't have time to dilly dally with buyers who, you know, halfway through the process say, oh, we couldn't get financing. Uh, You know, sorry, our investors don't like it, whatever it is. Um, If they can't follow through, then that's a problem for them. So they'll come to us and say, hey, if you guys like this deal, if we can make the numbers work, uh, you want it and we'll take a look. And if we do, we can execute. So we get a lot there, but I'll give you one other one, which is really interesting. Private equity groups out there, they're purchasing operating companies. And when they do that, oftentimes it comes with the real estate. They don't want to tie up their capital in real estate. They go, let's spin off the real estate. Let's do a sale lease back. And so usually they'll go through a broker, but if they've done a deal with us before, and this just happened, actually, we got a deal sort of handed to us because they said, hey, you closed on a sale lease back last year with one of our other portfolio companies. Uh, you know, as long as you can basically be competitive, deal's yours. And that was a great one for us. So that's kind of where they come from, you know, have so, something. Sorry, go ahead. What does the capital stack look like? Like how, how are you financing these deals? How much, what's the portion of equity, what type of loan to value or loan to cost 
Are you getting? Sure. Yeah. 70, 75% financing. The rest is equity, um, usually made up of between five and 10% from our group and our principals. Um, and then of course the rest coming from private investors who join us, they're taking an LP position, very passive, and they're getting, you know, a preferred return in cash flow as well as, um, you know, a split on the back end when we sell. So that's the way that looks not a ton there. Uh, once in a while we do offer a mezzanine debt offering where we'll take the equity we're subordinate to this mezzanine debt area, maybe $5 million of mezzanine debt, a fixed rate, which takes priority can you over. Define, can you define mezzanine debt? Yep. Mezzanine debt is, um, it's a fixed rate uh, debt. If you've seen debt investments or debt funds out there as an investor, mm-hmm. what you're typically seeing is something that's a first lien or first position debt. And it's usually they structure as a fund. They'll say, hey, we have all these debt. We're basically financing uh, first debt position with a bunch of residential, let's say. And so that's that position. Now in this uh, mezzanine debt um, position, they call it mezzanine means in the middle, right? Because you're in the middle of equity and first position, meaning first position, if this uh, property defaults, you know whatever is left there goes to first position first. Anything after that goes to mezzanine debt. Equity is very last in line there. So sure. we'll say, hey, we're going to take the equity position and take the risk on for the most part, mezzanine debt, it's much more securitized, but still subordinate to bank financing. So we might have 70, 75% in senior financing from a bank, and then maybe another 20% in mezzanine debt. So uh, the sort of advantages there, it's more securitized. Uh, The disadvantage is usually it's a fixed rate of return. You don't have any upside since it's not equity. And it's usually a lower rate of return because equity, you're taking on more risk. So you kind of get that commensurate return with the lower risk. Uh, But, you know, usually still have offerings, um, you know, kind of depends on the deal. But, you know, what I've seen is first position debt offerings somewhere between eight and 10 percent. Mezzanine debt can be anywhere from 12 to 15. I've seen even higher depending on the deal. Awesome. 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 Anything else uh, to say about, about in, industrial underwriting deal sourcing or anything like that before we have to our radio around for another two hours. Or so, but, <laughs> um, no, that's uh, I'll, I'll leave it there. I mean, it's really, again, you know, for someone for your active investors that are listening, I mean, you can go do one of these on your own. This really isn't just, uh, you know, there's a lot of institute, a lot of the world that we play in is really institutional, you know, between 10 and 20 million or, or more than that. Um, we're competing directly against publicly traded REITs, but, you know, we've seen deals that we've just sort of turned down because they're too small for us, right? One to $2 million deals. I mean, these are deals that your average show can do and you're generally dealing with a smaller tenant though, right? It's a smaller property. Higher risk. Dealing with. Yeah. And so you really may go, look, uh, here's Joe Schmo um, industrial truck repair. Okay, let's take a look at them. Uh, what I would encourage you to do is is inc- uh, set up a triple net lease with them if they want to do a sale lease back. That's my advice. Uh, you want to be in a position where you're not managing the property and expenses and really evaluate their business. Get to know them well. Don't just interview the uh, uh, the you know the management, right? Do more than that. Look at their financials, you know, demand at least three years of financials. Talk about you know anything that doesn't look right, ask them questions. So yeah, if someone wants to reach out to me after if they're looking at a deal like that, I'm always happy to give my time, get back to whoever's you know looking to get into that space if they want advice, uh, let me know. Awesome. Awesome. So for our radio round, I got uh, three questions, even though you might pass on one of them. I'm going to ask it anyway. The first one is what's your favorite book? I'm currently reading um, 
I'll just go with what I'm currently reading because I'm enjoying it. It's uh, Am I Being Too Subtle by Sam Zell, yeah. kind of notable billionaire investor. Um, I'm, I'm listening to the audiobook because, you know, I, I drive Just around. Time. Sometimes yeah, and, yeah. yeah, exactly. Big fan of audiobooks. And um, he's he's got, a, I think he's in his 80s, but uh, the guy is, he's pretty funny too. So there's lots of good stories. If you want some entertainment and really kind of looking at a um, perspective of someone who kind of zigs when everyone zags and really kind of finds the opportunities there, uh, great book. Awesome. And do you have a favorite quote? I don't. One of these uh, days I'll, I don't know, live, laugh, all right. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you don't have to answer it, but I have to ask because I've asked it 107 times in a row. So I was gonna, I'm going to ask. <laughs> That's fair. I'm going to get a post-it note. I'm going to put a couple of quotes on just for these times. <laughs> yeah. And then the last one, what's your favorite thing to do outside of work? Uh, love to hike. I live in a kind of hilly, uh, not super mountainous, but lots of great um, steep hikes, get a little exercise, but also do a lot of woodworking, kind of have a little okay. mini wood shop in my garage. Um, when you sit in front of a computer too much, you need to do something to make a tangible product. That's my my thesis on, um, you know, uh, psychological management. You know, you need to have something you make and maybe it's just my own sort of need and need to be a little bit artistic too, but I like making like small cutting boards or um, small furniture, wall decorations, all kinds of things like that. I can kind of uh, be a little creative with, but still sort of have a finished product that I can sink my nails into, you know? Awesome. Yep. Can't argue that. Uh, how can our listeners find out more about you and mag capital partners? I think go to our website if they want magcp.com or they can email me directly if they just want to reach out. Um, you know, I, I'm always about to give out my phone number. Then I realize it's probably a bad idea, but, uh, they can email me directly and call me after that. If they'd like drew at magcp.com. I give out my phone number when people interview me on podcasts and I've had some weird folks call me. <laughs> <laughs> I was about to say, screw it and just do it. But um, yeah, just email me. I I'm positive. I will get nothing but good people. If anyone's interested in talking, um, you seem like a, a good, good guy. I think all your listeners are an extension of your personality. That's how I see it. So yeah, if you want to awesome. talk shop or, or talk about opportunities that we're working on, you know, feel free to reach out. Awesome. Awesome. Drew, thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. I, I'll definitely be uh, following up with you and following w- what you guys are doing over at Mad Capital. Um, interesting space that I think uh, a lot of us could could definitely learn to appreciate from a diversification standpoint. So um, have fun next week in New Orleans. If somehow I make it out there, I will uh, definitely hit you up. Uh, give me, I need an advice just for our listeners too. You need to give me one restaurant to eat at while I'm in New Orleans, downtown. Downtown New Orleans. I don't go to downtown New Orleans as much as I, I <laughs> Only the tourists go there. Commander, yeah. Commander's Palace. Okay. That's one. Okay. That's I'm one. making a note. And if, it's, right. if, it's, if it's horrible, I'm coming back to tell you. Let, let me know. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Appreciate um, it. I'll, I'll uh, tell them you sent me. All right. <laughs> I do that. They, they actually know who I am. They used to be a customer of mine. Perfect. All right. Thanks, Drew. Have a good one. Thanks, Erlen. You too. Thanks for tuning in to the Rent Roll Radio Show brought to you by Crestworth Capital. We hope you enjoyed the show. And if you did, please hit the subscribe button and leave us a rating and review. You can also visit us at CrestworthCapital.com or RentRollRadio.com or follow us on Facebook at RentRollRadio or at Crestworth Capital. 
If you would like to reach us, feel free to shoot us an email at info at rentrollradio.com or sterling at crestwordcapital.com. We hope you come back next week to join us on some more of our journey. Until then, happy investing. Happy investing.